Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Before we get into the Word of God this morning and start what is, yeah, a bit of a new series for us as we, it's what I've called like the new Advent series, but not really Advent series series that's starting today. Uh, we, uh, I sort of suggested last week we're going to do a series from like today all the way through to Christmas, sort of looking at Jesus better than, who's better than, uh, better than anything else. Um, but I just, I don't know, I felt like it would be a good thing for us just to dwell on the topic of money for the next few weeks. Um, I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute, perhaps why it's a good conversation to have um, as God's people and perhaps at this time as well. Um, But so that's what we're doing in a few moments' time. Uh, A couple other things just to bring to your attention. Um, We, it's a time of year where uh, many of us, you know, sort of hit the shops and gather delicious foods together and celebrate Christmas with family and friends. Uh, For many of us, it's a really good time. For some people, it's a really hard time. Um, Even in this room, I reckon it's going to be a hard time for some of us, but particularly for people who don't have a lot, who are disenfranchised or disadvantaged, um, unemployed, um, finding life really hard. So we've just decided to partner in a sort of a low-key-ish way with Anglicare SA. Uh, we partnered with these guys uh, when we did the Blanket Adelaide with Love around the middle of the year, uh, providing warm clothing and things for men and women and families across Adelaide and South Australia. This time we're just going to do uh, a little bit of um, just, yeah, some food hampers. Um, so Anglicare South Australia is pulling together about 1,500 food hampers for our families and individuals who are doing it tough in, at Christmas time. And so um, there are, there's kind of what they've requested, basically, long-life milk, cans of fruit, um, Christmas puddings, fruit mince pies, chips and lollies. I talked to someone the other day and someone said, why do you eat mince pies, particularly at Christmas? I'm like, they're fruit mince pies. And they tried one and just never want to eat it again. But anyway, I don't know, that may be not you. Uh, but anyway, we are partnering with them. Uh, so please bring those items uh, to church uh, here on Sundays. Um, we're going to collect them up until the 5th of December. And then um, all that we've collected will be collected by Anglicare and then packaged up um, and sent to the people that are in need. Um, so please uh, do that. Community lunch is on today. So do stick around for lunch um, after we formally kind of finish the formal part of our gathering. Um, It is Malaysian curry day um, and uh, I think worth sticking around for that. So do do stay. It's free, it's fresh and it's um, it's good fellowship time. And if you are, your details have changed, if you're new, if you are keen to know more about our church, uh, please you can jump online and connect with us that way or there are connect forms up the back. Uh, Please use those uh, to connect with us. Uh, That would be a good thing to do. Um, I know we've just chatted to each other uh, for the last a few minutes, but I do want to get you to talk to the person next to you before we open up the word this morning um, and chat to them. And here's the question I want you to ask the person next to you. What do you do for work and how much do you earn? See, see if you want to do that. You don't have to ask that question. Talk about money, basically, is what I want you to do. Turn to the person next to you. What do you do? Talk about money. Go for it. I'll give you a minute or two. All right. What I want to do, what I want to do now is 
Everyone who earns under $50,000, I want you to move to this side of the room. And no, 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 just joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I don't know about you, but I think these days it seems that uh, sex and politics have now become at least like moderately acceptable conversations to have um, with you know, people at a dinner party or over a cup of coffee, uh, which pretty much leaves money as the only unmentionable thing. Uh, we complain about having too much small talk in our society and even in our churches, but I do challenge you, right, next time you meet with someone at your favourite coffee shop for a cup of, you know, like, decaf soy latte or something like that, or you go down to the pub for a beer, I want you to encourage you, right? Avoid the small talk and go straight to the big talk and ask someone, what do you do and how much do you earn? And then see what happens. You might end up with their decaf soy latte all over you. I don't know. Um, money talk is awkward, and I'm, I'm actually really aware of that. Um, Dorothy Rowe, an Australian psychologist and writer, um, puts the awkwardness we feel about talking about money down to three things, shame, humiliation, and envy. That is because money is often a measure of our success, right? So there's shame in having too little and some arrogance maybe in having too much. So we kind of feel like we can't talk about money. And if we do know what others earn, for many of us, it leads either to like envy and jealousy or disdain. So it's an awkward conversation, and yet we need to talk about it. And more importantly, we need God to address us in this particular area. There are heaps of reasons why it's really important to have this conversation uh, with, you know, deliberately and sensitively with each other. And I'm going to suggest four or three reasons plus one. So that's four, right? Um, so three key reasons why I think this is a really important thing to talk about. Firstly, it's a massive part of life. Even if you're not the kind of person who is consumed with looking at your bank account online sort of every single day, or you know, you're not the kind of person who wakes up in the middle of the night kind of worried about your share portfolio or how your investments are going, money is still a huge part of life. I know some of us might be a bit like paranoid about our Bitcoin, but we won't go there. Um, you and I can't escape the fact that money is a big part of life. Just consider for a moment all the things that you've planned to do this coming week that you couldn't do if you had no access to money, if all your money was cut off in an instant. Uh, no rides anywhere, no Ubers, no driving your car, no buying food, the list goes on. Um, it's a massive part of life, money. Uh, secondly, God has a lot to say about money. Um, somewhere I read mention, uh, that said that money is mentioned 30 times more than sex in the scriptures. I haven't gone into that in detail, I haven't explored that, um, but you know, the, the, the Bible talks a lot about money, from explicit talk about you know, poverty and wealth in the Proverbs, uh, to God's promise to, to bless the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Jesus, right, who continually uses money in his parables as illustrations and things like that. I'm told that of the 30-odd parables that Jesus told, at least 11 or 12 of them are around money involve money. It's, it's in the Bible everywhere. There's, Jesus speaks about it. The Old Testament speaks about it. The, the letters in the New Testament are, are really explicit about it. Really, you know, dire warnings in the, Old, in the New Testament about greed being idolatry. Colossians chapter 3. 
God has plenty to say on this important topic. And the third reason why I think we need to talk about money for the next few weeks is it could well be a spiritual blind spot for some of us. Um, A few years ago, when I was at a different church, um, my boss, the senior minister of the church, was teaching on 1 Timothy chapter 2, which has some pretty countercultural ideas about the roles of men and women in the local church. I know some people in that church who deliberately avoided going to church on that particular Sunday because of the nature of what was going to be taught. A few weeks later, I stood up to teach on 1 Timothy chapter 6, which has that famous but often misquoted verse, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I remember being a little bit sad that I heard no one talking about skipping church that week over what is, I think, an equally countercultural challenge. Perhaps it's because greed has become a spiritual blind spot, a whitewashed sin. A priest shared how in a lifetime's work he heard lots of confessions, but never once heard of someone confessed to being greedy. Do you see what we need to have this conversation? We really must speak about this. Oh, and my fourth one, here's my fourth one. I think it's coming up. Is it there? Is it there? It's Christmas. The gift, I don't know if the gift is coming. It's Christmas time. Um, Australian Bureau of Statistics said that um, uh, last year, Australians spent $11 billion on Christmas gifts. It's huge, right? Now, I wrote this on our socials over the last couple of, you know, like yesterday, that I'm all for giving gifts, right? It's a reminder of, of the great gift that we celebrate at Christmas and the great giver of the gift of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. It's a wonderful thing. But it's also, this is a time of year where we spend. And so how do we spend the money we have well? That's my fourth sort of bonus reason. That's why we have to have this conversation. We must speak about money. And I really do mean a conversation. You can expect to come to church over the next few weeks and hear me monologue for 30 or 35 minutes about money. But I want it to be fuel for us to talk about it, right? So community lunch today is a great time to talk about money, but I want it to kind of keep going after that. So after the next few weeks, I want us to think hard about what it looks like to handle money in our hearts and with our hands, I'm not going to say everything about money. We're not going to do like a biblical theology of money from Genesis to Revelation. I'm not going to quote every single Bible verse that alludes to money in the next three weeks. But instead, over the next three weeks, we're going to see key doctrines that God reveals to us and how they shape how we ought to handle money. Uh, This week, we're going to think about how power, godly power, shapes how we should handle our money. Next week, we're going to think about how godly love shapes the way we spend. Third week, how true worship saves us from the spiritual threat that money poses to us all. That's the next three weeks. I'm going to pray, and then Liz is going to come and read the scriptures, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would behold wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that, I pray that by your spirit you'd open our clenched hands, that we would be men and women generous, who are generous and willing to serve you with all that we have been given. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Liz comes forward, please open your Bibles up to Psalm 
66. Uh, that would be a good place to go. Thanks, Liz. Psalm 66. Shout with joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing praise to your name. Come and see what God has done, how awesome his works on man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us into a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and listen, all who, you who fear the God. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to God, who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. And the second reading is from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through the, its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So we're thinking about how a godly understanding of power helps shape what we understand money to be and what it is for. And just to make sure that we're on the same page this morning, I speak as one powerful person to other 
powerful people. For money is power. Every dollar that you have in your pocket or in your purse, every number in your bank account, large or small, is a pointer to the truth that we are all powerful people. Uh, Here's a quote from Robert Guest's book, uh, The Shackled Continent on Africa. Um, He was a journalist, uh, lived a lot of his life in the country of Africa, and he puts it like this, I will always be an outsider in Africa. I have never been poor or oppressed. I grew up in a country where African-style poverty has been unknown for generations. When I wander around Africa, I do so wrapped in the armour that money provides. Where there is violence, I can afford to stay in a hotel with security guards. Where there is sickness, I can buy medicine. Where there is hunger, I can always find something to eat. Africa constantly reminds me how lucky I am to have grown up in a rich, peaceful country. Now, there might be variations, right? I realise here in this room today, but the fact that we are all in this room is a sign that we are we're powerful people. For money is power. Money is powerful because it has the great capacity to to buy work, to get stuff done. Uh, Work is where um, things get done. And what money does is it lets us store up that work and it lets us make that work flexible. To put it another way, it is liquid power. Money can be changed into so many different kinds of work. With money, you can get people to build houses for you, which is what we're doing at the moment. Adele and I, we're getting someone to build a house for us, and it's killing me. No, um, I'll tell you about that later. But anyway, like money gets stuff done. I can get someone to build a house for me. You get people to do the cleaning of your house for you. You can get people to make cars for you. You can get people to cook meals for you and then clean the dishes for you afterwards. It transforms forms of work and moves one to the other. Of course, money wouldn't be powerful if it couldn't buy work. It'd be like a stash of monopoly money. It would be useless or like a Zimbabwean dollar these days. The power of money is the work that it can do for us, the flexibility it allows us, the privilege that it allows us. And so every time you, as a powerful person, reach into your pocket and you pull out one of these, something that looks like that, one of the various colours, you are making a choice to exert power. There are th- and each time... We must consider what does God teach about power when we use money. There are three things I want us to remember each time we look at our notes and our credit cards. One, God is all-powerful. Two, God uses power shamefully. And three, God uses his power to serve others. If you're a note-taker, there are your three points today. God is all-powerful. God uses power shamefully. And God uses his power to serve others. Let's look at the first one. God is all-powerful. I don't know if you picked up, that was the tone of Psalm 66, as Liz just read it out, that God does things. God does deeds that are so awesome that his enemies cringe. Uh, So Psalm 66, five to seven, come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. 
Let not the rebellious rise up against him. God is powerful. It's even more explicit in 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. You see, all power is God's. He made everything. He owns everything. He rules everything. God is exalted as head over all. Jeremiah 32, verse 17, puts it beautifully. Nothing is too hard for you. He's talking about the Lord. Nothing is too hard for you. Let's be honest. There are times, right, in life where things are difficult and painful. There are times of suffering, physical and emotional, that we experience when we ask those questions, like, why? We see it in other parts of the world. We see it in other people's lives. And we wonder why, when there is a good God, why these things? And they're hard questions, but the Bible never allows us to say that something is beyond God's power or beyond his control. We can't fall back on that defense. It's no defense at all. The truth is that God is all-powerful. He exalts some, he brings down others, and we may not always know why. We may not always know why God is doing what he's doing, but we always must affirm what the angel says in Luke 1.37, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. For God is all-powerful, and while God is all-powerful, the amazing thing is that God entrusts some of his power to people like you and me. Again, 1 Chronicles 29, wealth and honour come from you, Then he says in verse 14, God entrusts, he hands wealth, therefore power, over to people. Daniel chapter 2, you can read it later. I'm going to reference the Bible a lot today. Don't try and sort of keep finding that in the Bible. Just note them down, look them up later. But in Daniel chapter 2, verse 36 and following, Daniel is there, right, explaining to the greatest king of the day, the superpower pagan king of the superpower pagan nation Babylon, that he only has his wealth and his power and position because the living God has placed it into his hands. I don't know, Scott Morrison, Anthony Albanese, um, uh, Stephen Marshall, Peter Malinowskis, some of them may never admit that there is a God, but even still they have no power or will have no power apart from the power that God places in their hands. All power is God's and amazingly he entrusts some of his power to people like us. So every time you reach into your pocket and each time you see that bank note or that credit card, remember that God is all-powerful and that has implications. First implication is this. It reminds us that power is actually good. Power is not inherently evil and it's not something to be ashamed of. If God is powerful, then power is good. And so is the liquid power of money. Christians don't hate money and we don't hate power. Being poor does not mean that you are being ungodly, nor does being rich mean that you are being ungodly. It doesn't mean you're being godly either. 
Money, though, is good as long as you approach it knowing that the all-powerful God. And that's the second implication, right, is this, that no power is actually ours. Since all power is God's, we are only stewards of what has been entrusted to us. Now, I don't doubt that many of us in this room have worked hard to get where we are today. You've worked hard, you've given a lot to sort of build your situation and circumstances. But let me say it was only possible because of the health and the ability and the talents and the circumstances that God gave you. I mean, had God placed you in the poorest family in Angola, Africa, which as far as I know is one of the countries in the world with the shortest life expectancies, if God had placed you there with all the same amount of hard work, you'd never be sitting here today. All power is really God's. And it's still his, even when he places it in our care. Having money does not mean that you have power over some parts of God's creation. You don't own it. So not only are we accountable to God for every cent and dollar that we spend, but we're also to use it in a way that is according to his purposes. And to do otherwise is like, what? Stupid, it's foolish. It's actually robbery to use the power, to use the resources that God has given us in ways that are contrary to his purposes. It's the logic of Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Um, Don't read it now, read it later. In short, God entrusts to his people differing amounts of money to utilize for his kingdom in the parable. Then he calls them to account. I mean, we are in effect like investment managers for God. For us to use the liquid power that Christ has entrusted us with for purposes that are counter to his would be just as corrupt as an investment manager whom you've entrusted your money with to do as you've ordered and for them to just go off and spend it as they want and blow it all on their own priorities. That's illegal as far as I understand, by the way. It's theft. So Malachi chapter 3, Israel is accused by God of robbing him because they won't bring the tithes and offerings that he has requested of them. They won't use their wealth in his way. They're robbing him. So because all power is God's, when you sit down to do your budget, the question is not what will I do with my money, it's what would God have me do with his money. Which leads us to the second thing we need to consider. Uh, Second point two, God uses his power in shameful ways. God uses his power in shameful ways. At least shameful to anyone in their right mind, right? Um, God has all the power and yet he is controlled by his character. We can't limit God, but he can limit himself, right? So there are things God simply cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot be unfaithful to his promises. And this character, right, with all his power that he has, he then goes and acts disgracefully, right? That was why we had 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 read out. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and following. Here it is. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
We preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You know, with all the power that God possessed, he exerts it, dare I say it, stupidly. Yeah? When God reveals himself most clearly in the world, it's in the disgrace of a convicted criminal hanging on a machine of torture. Weak, pathetic, disgraceful, even shameful. I think what we've done over time is we've kind of cleaned up the cross. We make it sort of brassy and shiny. Um, when I used to work in the Anglican church, that's when I used to call myself a charismanglican, a um, little bit charismatic and a bit Anglican, sort of blended together. I used to work in some churches, right, which were beautiful buildings, and when, when you're preaching, you'd look behind you and there'd be this like beautiful brass cross, which someone would come in each week and sort of buff to the point where you had to wear sunglasses to kind of look at it. Um, these brilliant little crosses all over the place. I think we've done that to the cross. We've buffed it up. We've made it look brassy and shiny and clean and acceptable. Some people talk about wreathing the cross in roses, knocking off the, the rough edges, forgetting that it's an instrument of torture, the thing that in first century you would never even mention at a dinner party. Clean it up. We've made it sensible. Instead of the kind of ridiculousness and silliness and stupidity that it actually kind of is. First and foremost, right, the, cru- the, cru- the cross is a symbol of a man forsaken by God. More than that, the cross proclaims God is dead. He's a non-God. Death wins. Satan's victorious. Evil press on. God has abandoned God. Jürgen Moltmann writes this. Christians who don't have the feeling that they must flee the crucified Christ have probably not yet understood him in a sufficiently radical way. Jesus is an embarrassment. God uses his power in such a shameful way that the right-minded, sensible person would look at the cross and say, well, that was a bit silly, wasn't it? A little bit OTT? And keep their distance. And before we talk about why... We need to see that that aspect of God's use of power has implications for us. Firstly, we should expect that the way we as people who've come to know the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as silliness, but as the picture of God's amazing love for his world and for you and for me, we should expect that if we've come to know the cross of Jesus in that way, that how we use our money will be counterintuitive to how the world thinks. To those who rely on their calculator rather than the cross, the Christian exertion of power seems like utter nonsense. The great John Wesley lived by a principle, make all you can, save all you can. Anyone know it? Give all you can. So as a young man, right, John Wesley made 30 pounds a year. Times have changed, right? Things have moved on. Um, 
This, he worked out, right? He made 30 pounds a year. He worked out he could live on 28. And so he gave away two. The following year, his income doubled to 60 pounds. How's that for an income increase? I'm going to talk to the elders at church. No. <laughs> Went from 30 to 60 pounds, right? He, he realized that he could live just as well on the old standard. So he gave the entire increase away. It didn't change the way he lived. In the eyes of the world, Wesley was a total and utter fool, a shameful use of power. And deep down, right, even though we hear the story and we admire it, I hear the story and I admire it, I go, wow, what a guy. I know, I'm already thinking in my mind, yeah, but there are all kinds of reasons why I can't do that. Yeah, that was then. 21st century is a different story. And we think like that because it's foolish. Yet to use God's power so shamefully is not just an invitation to look like a fool. I actually think it's an invitation for us to use the money we've been given more sensibly and more powerfully. Because as Christians, we use our money for eternal purposes rather than short term. That's why the world sees it as foolish. But to pick up Wesley again, quote, I judge all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. Which brings me to my third aspect of God's power, why he uses his power shamefully. Thirdly, God uses his power to serve others. God uses his power for the good of others. We see this in all kinds of ways, how God exerts his power for the good of others. Um, wind right back to the very opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, if you know it. God speaks a powerful word and everything comes into being. God uses his power and the refrain all the way through is, it was good, 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 it was good. And then finally it was very good. Good for him, good for us. His creation is good. God uses his power for our good. Oh, we see it in the way he provides so well. His power used for good. Matthew 5 verse 45 reminds us that God doesn't just give rain to people who love him. He sends rain on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous, on the fields of the rebellious and the fields of the redeemed. He uses his power for the good of others. We see it when he saves Psalm 20. Someone cries to him for help and God answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. We see it in his power exerted for good in the same way that he preserves his people, Christian people. 1 Peter 1 talks about that it is through faith that we are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation to be revealed at the last time. That is, no one, none of us here in this room will stay Christian except that God uses his power for our good and works his power to keep us holding on to him. And we see it most clearly yeah, in the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Power for good. In Luke, Luke is just brilliant for looking at how God uses his power for good. In Luke chapter 6, uh, Jesus uses his power, power coming out of him to heal the sick. 
In Luke 9 and 10, he does this incredible thing, right? He hands his power over to his shabby disciples. He gives them power over demons, spiritual and physical decay of this world. And it's not for them to make cash out of it. It's them to use power to be a blessing to those around them. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, somebody, another guy named Simon, Simon the magician, sees this power in action and says, oh, I'd like a bit of that. Can I buy some? And he's cursed for doing it. Because the power that Jesus gives and uses is only ever to be used for the good of others. And the most powerful and clear moment is the cross. You might remember Mark chapter 15. People are calling out words of mockery as Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. What do they say to him? They're crying out to Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself. In other words, come down, save yourself, Jesus. And of course he could have. Jesus had the power to kind of get on the iPhone and call a legion of angels, right, to wipe out everything. And yet he used his power not for himself, but for the good of others. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. To us who are being saved, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. As we look at the cross, we see what power is for. For the benefit of others. And again, I want to say that shapes how you and I as God's people are to use our dollars. We're to use the money, the power that God has given us, not for self-promotion, but for helping others. To put it another way, for relationships. It's the logic of the parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable about the shrewd or the dodgy manager. For all his shonkiness, right, he is commended for a few things. He's commended because he sees what money is for, for making friends. He also sees money in a much bigger, longer-term kind of picture. And so we, when, when we go to use our money, our primary motivation ought to be for the good of others, for finding new ways to love. I don't know if you own a block of land and you build on it, don't just simply build on the block of land to make a profit. Think about how will this develop the community. In business, we've got to make sure that our deals benefit other people, not just simply clear a bigger profit. Oh, don't mishear me, right? It's not like it's wrong to make money. Or you can't make money, nor is making a profit a wrong thing. Quite the opposite. Higher profits mean greater power to serve others. What's the difference? Profit is not the goal. The goal is serving and loving others. Of course it'll mean that you take some of the money you have and you will give it away. Give it to other people, people in need. You give it to organisations that help people who are in need. But it might, might mean that you give it all away. We'll still spend some money on ourselves. 
Money we even spend on ourselves is not for ourselves. It's so that we might spend it on others. I put it this way. Friendships cost money. Um, Think for a moment about your friendships. Is there a single friendship or relationship you have where you've never spent any money connecting with them? You've never spent a cent connecting with them? Where you've never spent money on a phone call? Never spent money sharing a coffee? Never spent money splitting a pizza? Never spent money on the clothes that you wore in order to meet them to drink coffee and eat pizza? I think that's a good investment of our money just to cover up a little bit at least. Spending money on the the bus trip or the car that you drove to meet with them. Real relationships cost real money. I think I've shared this before. Each week I I spend money at coffee shops. Um, Not because I'm a coffee snob, um, but I spend quite a lot of money each week actually on coffee. I think I've tallied it up. On average I spend about 150 bucks a week on coffees. Just me and the coffee, that's all I do. Just me, nice drink, no. It's never about the coffee. I'm buying time and I'm buying space to meet up with people, to read the Bible, to pray, to chat about life, to talk about Jesus with people who already know him and people who don't yet know him, to encourage each other. That's what I'm spending my money on. I do like to spend my money on a decent cup of coffee. But the goal is not the good cup of coffee. The goal is I'm spending time, spending money to create time and space to talk to people about Jesus. Power is to be used for others. And of course, it will look different for each one of us. That's why we need to talk about this with one another. We all have different incomes. We all have different circumstances and situations. Some people need to make long-distant phone calls, not local calls, to keep relationships going. The principle is clear. We use power for other people's good. They're good now, and they're good for eternity. As Randy Alcorn writes, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. I talk to you, brothers and sisters, this morning as a powerful person, speaking to other powerful people. But I want us to be aware of where real power resides. It's not here in this banknote. It's in the God who gives his all. And when it comes to our money, the best aid we can ever have is not a calculator, but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we see the Lord himself using his power to serve. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you that with all the power that you have and you have so much power, not only are you limited by your character, but 
We thank you this morning that you used all your power to serve. Father, we thank you for serving us, men and women who didn't deserve it, but thank you for serving us by laying down your life for us on the cross. That supreme and unique example of how power is truly to be used for the good of others. Father, you give us power in various forms and a very clear power is that you give us money. Father, please take away from us unhelpful motivations of how to use our money, selfish motivations. Replace them with your motivation and purpose. Father, help us to use the power you've given us, the money you've given us, uh, for the good of those who are around us. And Father, help us to use the money you've given us to serve. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.